This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. This is your show producer, Andy, here to bring you a preview of this week's interview. On this episode, Josh and Mike are talking with Wes Strickling. He's the founder and CEO of Codex IT. Early on in the show, Wes spoke about how he got into IT despite studying history and philosophy in college. Technology was a very volitional decision. I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn this. These people think it's difficult. People talk about it being difficult. I'm like, so I just, I did what any nerd did. And I went to Barnes & Noble and got a shit ton of books Mm -hmm. and started reading. Later, Wes spoke on how being opportunistic and paying attention to new laws led to the company's focus on eye care customers. 2009, when they passed the High Tech Act, which is a component of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act to deal with the financial crisis, the Great Recession or whatever, they added a provision to pay physicians incentives, like cash incentives, through CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, if they went on electronic health records, so if they digitized their practice. And this is where, you know, being a little bit of a nerd helped me out, because I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go look at this law. And I was like, oh my God, this is real. They're, they're actually paying these physicians. I'm like, this will actually digitize healthcare. Like, this will move the needle, because they're not, these aren't tax credits. These, this is like incentive payments from Medicare and Medicaid to, you know, providers. They wrapped up the show with Wes's thoughts on living uncomfortable, and he wasted no time getting straight to the point. Being an entrepreneur, being outside your comfort zone is uncomfortable, period. Growth only happens when you're outside your comfort zone, like full stop. You can dot your I's and cross your T's for the rest of your life, you know, take your 2% raise and shuffle your feet right into the grave. That's fine, but, you know, you're not going to get any big wins that way. As always, thank you so much for tuning into the show. We really appreciate all your support. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. It was one of the most relatable episodes to date. That's it for me. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike here. We got Josh in the booth over there. Josh, how you doing? Hey, dude. I'm good. How are yeah, you? Good. How, how's everything in your life? Oh, it's fantastic. Fantastic. How? What about you? It's been a tough day. Tough day? Yeah, we'll leave it at that. But I'm excited for our interview. Yeah, me too. Me too. And uh, we'll jump right into it today. We'll skip the small talk and jump right into introducing our guests. So today on the show, we have joining us Wes Strickling, and he is the CEO and founder of Codex IT. Codex IT provides complete managed technology services to multi-office and PE platform eye care groups, and their deep industry knowledge allows them to provide support for all the moving parts in a modern practice so we're excited to be talking with Wes today about his entrepreneurial journey, how Codex IT supports its clients, and a whole lot more. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Wes. Wow, thank you for having me. Yeah, appreciate you joining us. And uh, one of the first places we like to start is just talk a little bit about your background, your story, kind of how you got to where you are today. So if you could just kind of walk us through everything from, have you always lived in Columbus to kind of how you got to uh, Codex? Oh, absolutely. Um, again, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a neat podcast. My name is Wes Strickling. Um, grew up in uh, Canton, Ohio. So Northeast Ohio. It's a little different than Columbus. I don't know if you guys, either of you guys are from Northeast Ohio. Uh, I'm not from there. I'm from Oregon, but we had tons of teammates that were from like the Canton area or even yeah. a little mm-hmm. bit north into, I think it's North Lakewood the, and the just Cleveland. And that's like Canton, Akron, Cleveland. Yeah, we got a lot of friends who live in like Cuyahoga Falls. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. Same, same. So, yeah, I grew up there, um, moved down to Columbus for school. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, definitely uh, did not intend to ever be uh, in business, more or less tech. Um, I was a history and philosophy major. So okay. I fully intended to uh, be a college professor. That was the, that was the direction uh, that I was headed. So, Do you want to teach history or philosophy? Uh, I would have been hope, uh, happy with either. Uh, humanities, like that crossover uh, subject mm-hmm. would have been phenomenal. So what, what drew you to that originally? And then what changed that? Um, well, I mean, I was always like a sort of a 
I was a bookish kind of nerdy athlete. So like I was, you know, the was the kid who was like on the chess team, but, you know, also on the football team, kind of that kind of. You literally just described Mike too. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was, that's where I was. And I was, I always had a book in my hand, I was reading and, you know, uh, loved history. And so when philosophy was, when I got introduced at a little, you know, high school, I was like, well, this is, this is where it's mm-hmm. at. Like you're looking at like, you know, people's underlying paradigms and how they think. And that, sure. was, that was always very fascinating to me. Yeah. Philosophy always frustrated me. Like the question, like, okay, you start on one side of the ocean with a boat, you place all the parts on the way. Is it still the same boat when you get over there? I'm like, why are we even talking about this? My favorite class I ever took was first year of undergrad. It was like these 13 theoretical philosophies from like Aristotle and all like the ones where they have like the shadows on the wall. I forget who. That's uh, Plato's, the allegory of the cave. That's beautiful. Plato, they had like, and I remember I had to memorize all 13 of them. And I had like, I'm so impressed by this because I had like 40 pages of notes memorized word for word for word. Everybody in our our hall was talking about how hard of a class it was. It was super hard. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I'm going to memorize every damn word on these sheets. That is phenomenal. But I I can only do it because I got into it. I did like it. You know, I like the Mm -hmm. theory behind it. I like the way you think about, like you create kind of these axioms, these fundamental axioms, and then you kind of build this entire theoretical structure over top of it around how the world works. Theoretical math major over here, so. Oh, nice. He, yeah, likes, but that, he wants everything to fit into his axioms. That was actually an accident. Anyways, back, so you you finish up Ohio State, and then you get done. Do you keep going into schooling after that? Where do you go? Finished up at Ohio Dominican. Ohio so, Dominican. Yeah. Sorry, no, I just made the no, assumption. No, no worries. Um, go ahead. Where else did I go from there? Yeah, so you finished undergrad. Took a little bit of a detour. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I went to five different colleges over eight years. That's so, a lot. Yeah, and the sad part about that story was I graduated from high school as a sophomore in college. So my, my senior year, I went to Kent State uh, full-time and just came back for, like, uh, athletics practice in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I still took a meandering path. And You're supposed to do the tours before you enroll. You know, I was told that. Uh, <laughs> but I, um, I do uh, tend to do things out of order, and I am not a great direction follower. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, all's well that ends well, something my grandfather used to say, and I thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard in my life until I got older, and I was like, oh, mm-hmm. there was some wisdom in that. Right. <laughs> so meandered around the colleges and ended up um, working. I was at, I was at Columbus State, um, taking a, doing my tour of duty there and taking a computer class. And um, there was working at UPS and uh, Y2K crisis was going on right then. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys are probably a little too young for that. Oh no, that hullabaloo. No, I, no. I remember, everyone thought the computers were going to shut down because shut the world down. Yeah, 1999 was as far as they go. <laughs> I remember the night. I don't think I knew. I don't think my my brain was intelligent enough to realize what was happening. Mm-hmm. But I remember the because I remember the Will Smith song. They just played that on loop. Yeah, and I remember my neighbor next door who stored literally as many boxes of toilet paper as they could in their attic because they thought that everyone was going to need. Why is it always toilet paper? Well, it's, a, it's, it's a, always a, it's always toilet paper. Whenever there's a crisis coming, people are like. I got to like, forget the beans, forget the food, like perishable foods. I got to have the toilet paper. That's a typical San Diego person over there. That's the problem. Is, we were is, in Virginia it, at the time. It, it is an odd, like stock item for someone to be panicked about. With, right. Like, you know, the shit's really going to hit the fan. Is that what you need? I well, guess. Pun I mean, intended. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> I think if the shit is going to hit the fan, that's what I want. <laughs> I suppose a bidet would be messy at that right. point. Um, so I would, uh, I was taking this class and I was like, oh, I natural aptitude for this, I guess. I didn't find it as hard as everyone was finding it hard and- you know, at the time I was working at UPS and planning on being a, a college professor. So I was like, you know, I got adjunct. I got 15 years before I get, you know, a real job. <laughs> and, and then like people, I don't know, you know, people that just didn't sound 
like they knew what they were doing were saying the word networking and IT and they were getting jobs at the time making, you know, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. And to me that was like at that time it was an astronomical sum. I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God. This yeah, you're is making un- like twenty grand a year at UPS at, oh, at the most. No, I wasn't making twenty. Yeah, I was, you know, less but um, schlepping packages. And so mm-hmm. I was like, right, I need to get on this train like this is. So uh, technology was a very, um, you know, volitional decision. I was like, I'm mm-hmm. going to do this. I'm going to learn this. These people think it's difficult. People talk about it being difficult. I'm like, so I just, I did what any nerd did. And I went to uh, Barnes and Noble and got a shit ton of books mm-hmm. and started reading. I was IT like, for dummies. I was like, I got this. Yes. <laughs> Didn't do that one, but just about every other book. Um, so uh, that you know, so I was transitioned to a sales job at the time, and I was like, okay, well, IT's this. They're like, we need help in IT. I'm like, I got this. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't have this, but I was sure I could figure it out. Um, so you know, they gave me a job uh, doing IT. Worked my way up. And which company was this that gave you the job? Actually, it was Waterbeds and Stuff, which was pretty funny. Yeah. So, is that uh, the same owner as uh, Basement Doctor? Are those the same people? Not. I thought they were. Somebody, I thought somebody told me that. I'm not wrong. Somebody gave me inaccurate information. Right, right. There That's the important, it's the important assessment here. That's an interesting so, store in general, though. Yeah. It's like they got some weird stuff in there. Yeah, they've got a little bit of everything. Waterbeds and Stuff. Yes. I'm more curious about the and stuff. Well, I think it was kind of like a head shop, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically uh, and tchotchkes posters mm-hmm. and incense and makes sense. And so you're working IT for waterbeds and stuff. Yeah. We worked through that and I worked my way up there and eventually was like, okay, I'm not enjoying this anymore. This isn't a lot of fun. And so I was like, I'm going to go out on my own. What age are you at this point? I would have been 25. Mm-hmm. So what I'm curious about is you kind of get that conclusion. Like I'm not having fun with this anymore and I'm not learning as much anymore. So I want to go out on my own. But what I'm curious about is like, when did you shift to like, this is like, I could do IT and work in this industry for my whole life? Um, well, I never was like, this is my jam. I'm going to do this until I'm dead. Right. Um, you know, it was more like, this is the jam now because mm-hmm. there's a demand for it. And there's they're, money. They're paying way more than yeah. I was <laughs> making, obviously, at UPS. And I was like, I ever would have made it as a professor. Um, by the way, that's still my retirement plan. Professor. Yeah. Going back. Absolutely. But, uh, no, that was, it was never like a, you know, I was never a kid who played video games. I mm-hmm. just, it was purely like an opportunistic decision to move forward in that that career path. And, you know, I'm kind of a stubborn, didactic bulldog. So I was like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to make myself learn everything about it. And we went from there. What are your motivations, if you can recall that point in life? Were you very career driven and it was about like, how much money can I accumulate? And how, how high can I raise my career? Or was it just going with the flow? No, I was never a go with the flow guy, but it definitely wasn't like a career thing. I mean, you know, I had a, a wife and a very young kid. Mm-hmm. Um, At 25 and, already? Yeah, I had my, uh, my I was raising my stepson and I, my baby girl, uh, I had her when I was 23. And so this was more like survival <laughs> versus, you know, it was like, I need to take this opportunity because, you know, it's going to make life easier. It was never like, all right, I'm going to move to this company and then I'm going to move to the C-suite. Yeah. It was more like, hey, like, I'd like life not to be so sucky. Kids are expensive. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies. 
companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. You're 25. You're at a decent level role in waterbeds and stuff. You step out, you say, I'm going to do my own thing. The idea is great. The execution Probably, oh, probably well, hard. Horror show. Yeah. And then I'm, I, again, I'm more curious, like you, I'm 25. I'm going to do my own thing. Right. In this industry where I learned everything I know at waterbeds and stuff and, and through books and through books and through books, a lot of books, and, a lot of books. And so it's like taking that leave and thinking like, and then the other thing I'm curious about is how do you end up in a specialized version of this in just, I oh, that was a complete accident. There was, I mean, there wasn't a plan there either. I mean, I went out on my own. It was a horror show. I mean, I ran a really shitty lifestyle business for a decade. I mean, it was terrible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, hand to mouth it, some months and bad months worse than when I had like, you know, a mediocre job. So worst story from that time period. I want to, I'm going all the way right to the, right to the bad stuff. What was the worst oh, thing that happened in that time right. period? This was awful. So I was traveling. We just started to reach out outside of central Ohio, mm -hmm. um, you know, into like Northeastern or Northwestern, you know, a little bit into Tennessee and Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, so I was traveling and my, it was a divorce at the time, but my mother was watching uh, my baby and um, I get a call. I was like, what's up mom? You know, everything okay? And she's like, no, Wes, the power's off. I was like, I think I forgot to pay that bill. <laughs> you know, and you're like, you're literally juggling bills. And I was uh -huh. like, this is humiliating. Like my mother is doing me a favor watching my kids so I can try and go, you know, do this project. And I <laughs> let the power get shut off on her. Jeez. It was awful. So yeah, it was, there was a little uh, fire drill and it got sorted, but it was. Right. But yeah, so you're like, so you're working so hard on this thing, right? And what was the turning point? Because you mentioned like, it was a lifestyle business for 10 years. It was, it was a struggle. Yeah, it was a And what went, like, was there a moment in time where you said, this is like, I'm done doing this, I'm going to change? Or was it a slow, gradual transition? Well, there was uh, more of an uneven, um, you know, sine wave type situation, you know. So during um, 2009, when they passed the High Tech Act, which is a component of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, um, to, you know, to deal with the financial crisis, the Great Recession or whatever they, I think they've has been finally called and sorted. They added a provision to pay physicians incentives, like cash incentives, through CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, if they went on electronic health records. So if they digitized their practice. Mm -hmm. And this is where, you know, being a little bit of a nerd helped me out because I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go look at this law. And I was like, oh my God, this is real. They're, they're actually paying these physicians. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this will actually digitize healthcare. Like this will move the needle because they're not, these aren't tax credits. These, <laughs> this is like incentive payments from Medicare and Medicaid to, you know, providers. So if you're a cash-based business, if you were like a dermatology or somebody that just took cash, you wouldn't get them. But anyway, the majority of healthcare providers in the country take Medicare and Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, I'm going to focus on healthcare. And I already had a handful of eye care clients. And so I was like, all right, talk to them. And I was like, they're like, yeah, this is huge. This is what everybody's talking about. Everyone's going to do this. So rode that wave. That was nice. Mm -hmm. A lot of luck, a little bit of nerdy research, you know, and then some decent execution. Right. And then we really exploded though. I mean, we tripled in size mm -hmm. from 09, 2010. Right. So how big was the team? What was the team? Like, what was the team? The team? Went, I mean, went, it was little, but I mean, we went from like, you know, three to 12 or something. Right. I mean, it was great, heady. And then the wheels just came off the train, you know, you, you're growing that fast. 
And I, you know, no operational controls, no, you know, real like, you know, HR system, payroll, all the things that you need as you start to get, you know, close to 20 employees. None of that was in place. None of it was pre-thought. And so it was, you know, crashed again. Throughout that 10-year period, why even keep doing it and not just go get a safety security job where you know you're going to get payroll all the time and you don't have stress? If I had a nickel for every uncle and business mentor and family friend that told me that, I'd be, Mm -hmm. (laughs) probably still be better off with the job, but... (laughs) <laughs> I, uh, no, I mean, I had people I respected, you know, were like, hey, look, your business is no good. Like, go be a CIO. You're smart. Like, you can do this. Like, just take a job. And I was like, no. Mm-hmm. Did you like, did you like the autonomy of it? Or was it the identity portion? Um, the autonomy was probably key. You know, being able to, you know, run your schedule, do what you want. Um, also, the, what I felt like there was in... When you're on your own business, I, I consider it like a vehicle. Like you have a vehicle with which to drive results. Mm-hmm. You know, energy, money, time, execution, all those things. You know, you are stuck in a finite, like, uh, you know, a bowling lane with, you know, bumper pads, like kitty bumper pads if you are in a job in some respects because the sky is not the limit, right? right? You know, the next, the next suite is, the next level, the next department, the next department head, you'll go to the next big company, and then you're in the VP, and then you're in the C-suite, but it's not unlimited. Now, mm-hmm. never achieved anything close to that, but I always believed that that was, you know, there was unlimited potential when you had full control over the vehicle with which you, you know, generated revenue. Mike and I actually talk about that a lot because I think we're pretty different personalities in that aspect, and I can't mm-hmm. stand the idea that, like, I, I need to know, it's almost like a risk-taking gambling thing inside of me, maybe, where I want to just know that I can take massive leverage and I have upside infinite. Mm-hmm. But I don't care about the downside. Like, I don't want the downside, right? But I don't care that it's there. And I think that yeah. your personality is very different. From very that. opposite end of that. I'm like, hey, I've got plenty of upside where I'm at and none of the downside risk. So I don't, I don't need that infinite upside, right? But I also know that I don't do well in those positions, right? Where I am like putting all the risk and I'm, it's all on me. And I don't like, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's not that I don't trust myself to do that. It's that I don't, I wouldn't be happy doing it. And yeah. that's the difference. That's fair. I think the sick part of me is I don't think I could live mm-hmm. without doing this. Yeah. You know, like, because it's, it, when I think about just knowing that, okay, my next five years look like this, then they look like this, it like, I don't know what I'd be living, you know, like uh, people can find happiness in other things and that's great for them. Yeah. I struggle for that. I totally understand. I think that um, levering, you know, levering your life almost, you mm-hmm. know, as opposed to not. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big thing. And I will say that I'm a little uh, fish, fish describing water in this aspect because right. you're, you know, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 25 and a shitty one for most of those years, <laughs> but um, a decent one now. I think it, but making I, it, a business last 10 years by default means you can't be a shitty entrepreneur. <laughs> I don't know. There's some stubbornness that's involved right. in that. But I wonder, I have trouble even describing, thinking outside of like, you know, like a fish describing water. Like what's mm-hmm. it like? I don't know. I have, you know, it's been 20 years since I've had a job. Well, I think it's just like the way I think about it to me is, you know, there's dozens of ways to skin a cat, right? And it depends on what makes you happy and what you want to pursue. It's not, I think there was for a time from like, like early 2010s to late 2010s, it was like being an entrepreneur was like the really cool thing and that everybody wanted to do it. But what people didn't realize is just not everybody's cut out to do that. And it's not going to, you're not going to like, everyone's going to optimize their life in a different way. You got to figure out what your you know, it's what your niches. And I have a good friend who's um, like a hedge fund guy, researcher, like a quant guy. He's, you know, Columbia um, yeah. qualitative statistics guy. And uh, he is, writes really well, but he writes and wrote an article about basically, 
your trading style needs to reflect your personality mm -hmm. or it will never work. You know, if you're, you know, if you're going to lever three to one and, you know, you don't like, you know, that kind of risk, you will always, you know, panic at the wrong moment, draw down, yeah. trash your returns, even if the model was right and it was going to work out. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that entrepreneurship is similar to that. You, it has to match your personality, um, which in, you know, I would say 60 or 50% of that is your risk tolerance. Right. And I, I appreciate that very much. I think the authenticity and being genuine yourself is challenging for me in particular. I don't know if other people feel this way. We watch other people make money. There's so many different ways to make money. And I watch other people just kind of fall ass backwards and money mm -hmm. and then you want to chase those things. And I'm like, that's not right for me, but it's, I don't know if you struggle. I've struggled very much with that aspect of life. Well, um, a similar, like, so one of the things that what you just said, I absolutely love every week. I learned some cool way that someone made like a fortune and I'm like, Oh my God, that's a thing. And like, you know, that guy's retired, you know, at 45 from it or whatever. That's phenomenal to me. Like one of the coolest things is finding out these new things that people do and make money at. And I also appreciate your ability to be, you know, realistic enough to talk about the failure for 10 years. Cause I think that some people think that it has to happen in six, 12 months. Cause we hear about that and not like you overnight know, success, social media. Well, and, and, and I will say that, you know, chasing the shiny object, that's a, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. with most humans, but with entrepreneurs and specifically, you know, right. You're like, Oh, look at that guy. His business just got a raise or got a series a and oh man, mm -hmm. you know, but you know, definitely like eye on the prize, right? Like, all right, I have chosen a plan. I mean, I always say like business is not rocket science. I mean, this is not, you are not putting things, you know, out into the uh, upper atmosphere. We are designing a plan. We are consistently executing, reviewing the plan, rinse and repeat, you know, this is, it's, and so, like, anytime, you know, people get too heady or too fancy or to decide that they're, you know, they're the smartest guy in the room, that's usually about when they trip over their own, you know, tongue hmm. or foot and hit the ground. Business sounds a lot like golf. Ah, well, I don't chase that little white ball around, but. Yeah, it's so golf is one of those sports that you go out, you do it, and as soon as you think you know what you're done, it's going to go poorly. Interesting. Yeah, the one thing I know about golf for sure is, like, if you're athletic, it doesn't matter. You can't fake yeah, that's the time. The, that's the hardest part. It's like, you, you, if time. you're athletic, you go out, you're like, I should be able to do this. No, you have to put the time in right. with golf. I mean, it is like, there's no cheating that time. There's yeah. no cheating the number of strokes. and <laughs> it makes sense. So what's the strategy look like today? What's the team look like today? What's the go-to-market strategy look like today for and Maybe even before that, too, if you can give me a snippet on what the 12 people to to today looked like. And you talked about, you know, you just, it's, it wasn't rocket science. So at some point you just, you found out what the prize was and you kept chasing it and you put blinders on everything else I have to imagine. Yeah. You know, it is funny. It's a catch 22, like uh, taking advice and listening to people. Once we kind of got over that kind of sine wave double bump and, you know, we're like, okay, now <laughs> things are steady. The team's steady. I'm making payroll regularly. <laughs> awesome. I'm like, mm -hmm. You know, I started to look around like, okay, how can I really grow, optimize, you know, what do you do? Well, you know, look outside yourself, right? Like, I don't freaking know everything. So I'm going to be like, all right, I found a peer group. And I was like, all right, this is good. Like, this is like a peer group of similar sized, um, you know, IT, outsourced IT CEOs. It's going to be great. So I fight my way to join this group. They're like, oh, you're not this, you're not too small, you're too small a little bit. And anyway, whatever, I got in. Um, and it was great. You know, it was it was a little Kool-Aid drinking as I think, you know, group dynamics kind of skeeve me out a little bit in general. I mean, there's a there's a little bit about group dynamics where, you know, there's these certain um, archetype roles that I feel like you get in a group and like all of a sudden everyone like shuffles into a role, even if it's not what they were in the beginning. Right. Anyway, so I'm in this group and 
it was good for a couple years, you know. Things were cons- things that like operational maturity was improved. I was looking at a PL, I was looking at a balance sheet on a regular basis. I was looking at growth quarter over quarter. And there were metrics, there were measurements, they were being adhered to and followed up on. And it was good. I liked it. So but then we started to like grow really geographically. And I was hiring people all over the place and we got rid of our office. This was in 2012 and 12 and 13. And this group, I mean, they basically, you know, they put me up on the cross. They're like, well, you, you know, you can't, no, you don't have a company culture because you don't, uh, you don't have an office. There's no way you, can, you don't know what your people are doing. How do you manage them? Obviously I had the last laugh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I got thrown out of this peer group. Like, they basically were like, you no longer are welcome here. Like, you know, we would like you not to be in our group anymore. I was like, screw you. Fine. Of course, I was hurt. I was like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, rejected by my peers, you know, thrown out of a group that I had gained some good things from. But it is like that that strange catch-22 where you're like, oh, you know— there are norms. There are things that you need to gain from other people. And then there's there are the, definitely those points and those divergent like pivots where you're like, well, listening to everybody and doing everybody, drinking their Kool-Aid and doing everything the same isn't always the best move. Mm-hmm. And threading that needle is never easy because obviously you don't know until a couple years later what actually is going to happen. But in my case, it was good experience. And then it ended up being bad because I got rejected and tossed out. Right. Now, what we did over that period was hone our ability because I doubled down because I was pretty sure I was right. I mean, mm-hmm. if I wasn't, I was committed. I was going to run this thing into the ground if it was not right. And what we did was we developed like a way to manage staff remotely. Mm-hmm. This was in 13, 14. We developed hiring processes that, you know, through bad hires and misses, we like tuned it. Like, how do you interview someone in Kansas when you're in, you know, we have staff in North Carolina and Ohio. And Mm -hmm. so basically how to manage a whole team remotely, we had like, we had dialed in by 2015. Um, So I had the last laugh when the pandemic hit. That's what I'm curious about. Did any of those people from that previous peer group, 2020 hits, come back to you and say, hey, we need help with this? Nope. Not a chance. I I would have hoped for that. That would have been like the, you know, the sweet irony. Uh, It would have been wonderful. But I think, uh, you know, the ego is a a proclivative human. So so that's just, I always say, threading the needle is everything. Like you, Mm -hmm. you know, anyone who's like so sure, like, you know, the king is dead, long live the king is kind of how I feel. Like if this is working, if it's not working, then pivot and do something different. Mm -hmm. But also if it's working and someone tells you it's not the right way to do things, that might not be correct either. So how do you niche down or when do you end up niching down on the eye care space? And then what is that the was team? back when, so I think we already covered that one, right? We Way back, back in when, the beginning. So we start, yeah, that was in like in uh, 08, 09 when the high tech act came out. I like, but I didn't know eye care in particular. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're all the medical practices, right? I, I, I was I talked to these eye care clients and they were like, Hey, we should really do this. You know, this is a good industry. You know, everyone loves their own, their own bubble. And so they were like, yeah, it's great. Come, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, it, it's worked out incredibly well. I love the industry. It is, um, extremely incestuous and circular. I mean, like the people like never leave. It's pretty, mm-hmm. the eye care industry is pretty interesting in that respect. Like someone might work for like the five or seven different like pharma companies that Alcon, b and mm-hmm. um, Bosch and Lom that like work in the industry, but like they never leave the industry. They'll just go to one of the other ones. Same with the equipment. Nice from a referral standpoint, too. I mean, you build a good reputation. You probably get passed around pretty quickly. It is, 100%. And then, you know, longevity, staying in the same place in a long time is like a powerful, uh, it's something that's not talked about in entrepreneurship very often. Like, it's sort of the antithesis of the, you know, fail fast, you know, kind of mentality. But standing in the same place for a long period of time, we've had clients 
you know, pass us up and then come back three years later. You know, I've had relationships in the industry where now they're in the C-suite at companies where they were, you know, junior sales reps in the beginning, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'm not saying it's not the way to get, you know, super rich at all, you know, like, you know big take a big company public and, or, you know, get a couple, get a good couple exits. Um, but there is uh, some power to stay in the same place for a long time and consistently executing. Yeah. Consistency. That's that piece, right? That people I think miss out on too often is just being consistent. Yes. I didn't think business can be boiled down to like, do what you say you were going to do when you said you were going to do it. Yeah. So where are you guys at today? Company size? How many size? Uh, about like, uh, like 52 employees. Mm -hmm. So we're not huge. How entrenched are you still in the day to day? I have zero day to day. I'm more um, evangelist. I have, I have an incredible team. Like I, I cannot say enough about this, the team that we have. Like the from the leadership down to like in the trenches, they're awesome. Um, and that is a part of this culture that we built that my peer group said I couldn't build because we were mm -hmm. remote, that we figured out how to build. And then, you know, people have been with me for, you know, a decade or more and right. just entrenched. They, they love their job. We treat everybody awesome. We pay over market. We have Cadillac benefits. And there's just some stuff like when I see like, you know, someone in a business kind of corner on like, you know, employee compensation, I'm like, you're an idiot. Yeah. Like that is not going to work out long term. Yeah. I, I like the phrase, you know, no one poaches your people. You lose them. Mm -hmm. Unequivocally true. Better benefits, better pay. That's not that they poached them. They just paid them what they're well, worth. Well, and we, you know, went through this the whole like hiring crunch that everyone like threw a fit about for the last, mm -hmm. you know, 12 months. We didn't have a problem getting people. We were, you know, we were offering a good culture, above market pay, great benefits. And people stayed and came. So what about you? I mean, you're kind of hands off to some extent. You got a really good team in place. What are the goals going forward for you? Like, do you have succession plans in place for the business? What does the next chapter look like? Yeah, um, you know, we, we have, there's a handful of things. I mean, private equity exits, always, you know, a thing. You know, you get, I get a couple offers a week, but I don't know. I don't know what they do with my team. You know, we've been mm -hmm. down that road a couple of times, LOI'd and, and gone down due diligence and, and quality of earnings. And I think that, I'd probably rather have, you know, a root canal or someone stick bamboo <laughs> shoots under my toenails than go through that again. I'm sure I will at some point, but that process in and of itself is absolutely miserable, due diligence and quality of earnings. Um, so there's that as an option. Um, you could do an ESOP structure and, and, you know, sell shares to your employees and structure that deal. I'm not sure. You know, I, I tease some entrepreneurs who always build to sell and I'm like, well, why would you sell an ATM? Like if it's, you know, right. if it's working and it's, and you have freedom, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, like, like, unless you're trying to fly private or something like, you know, don't be a pig. It's fine. <laughs> so, you know, I'm back to like, basically I speak around the country. You know, we did, I was in Kauai for a week. It was for work for a conference. Um, then I went to Salt Lake City for, and stayed in Park City for a week. Cause I was, um, I bought a company in Salt Lake City nice. at the end of the year. Great company. I've been around a long time. The guy that owns it's awesome. In the same space or yeah, somewhere else? same space. So um, like half eye care. So it was pretty cool. Like uh, powder was awesome in Park City. They got like six inches that while I was out there. And then I went straight to Cabo for another conference, eye care conference, and, and spoke there. And uh, it was nice. You know, that's, that's sort of my role is basically evangelizing, speaking, you know, building up brand awareness. My wife owns her own business as well. We mm -hmm. have a real estate company. We do, you know, a handful of other things. Plus, there's, there's so many books to read. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to the books. What do you read? Uh, House of Morgan by Chernow. It's a biography of the, the Chase okay. Bank's growth. Yeah. I'm excited. It'd be like the last one. I will have read all of Chernow's biographies after I finish this one. Very nice. I'll have to check it out. I think that's a good place to kind of head towards some of our last questions of the show, Josh, unless I'm missing 
Anything? No, I think okay. you got it. So first one is, you have any advice for our listeners? And so a lot of our listeners out there are in their 20s to 40s, right? Columbus area, obviously interested in entrepreneurial stuff. They want to hear about people in Columbus, but also many of them are entrepreneurial minded themselves. So what, what advice would you have for them out there? I mean, swing the bat. If you want to do it and you're not going to like harm anybody by doing it, you know, like, you know, if you're levered to the hilt and you're, you know, you need them, you know, a steady job and you have a bunch of people to support, you know, don't be a dumbass like I did and quit, you know, when, <laughs> when you were in that situation. Fair enough. I think that's solid advice. Uh, and what's our last question of the show is centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortable. So without telling you too much about why we chose that phrase for a show about entrepreneurs and business leaders, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? The phrase live uncomfortably? Live uncomfortably. I mean, being an entrepreneur, being outside of your comfort zone is uncomfortable, period. And so, and I think that there's only, only growth only happens when you're outside of your comfort zone, like full stop. Um, you know, you can, you know, dot your I's and cross your T's for the rest of your life. You know, take your 2% raise and, you know, shuffle your feet right into the grave. That's fine, mm -hmm. but that's, you're not going to get any big wins that way. Right on. Well, Wes, it's been great talking to you. We appreciate you coming on and talking about oh. Codex IT, telling your story. Awesome. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah. And uh, Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed that episode, you want to hear more, just like it, go ahead, hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. It'll make sure you never miss an interview from us. And if you want to learn more about Codex IT, go to codex-it.com. Fantastic. Thanks so much for tuning in. Appreciate all your support. We'll talk to you next week. Next week.